Thanks for joining us for our series on the gospel and its ramifications for church life. These messages work through the heart of the gospel within the overall story of God and then deal with several outcomes of this good news in Jesus. How he creates a new people for God by his spirit, defines and upholds their identity through baptism and communion, and sends them as ministers of reconciliation to the world as foretastes of God's coming kingdom. Cornerstone exists to declare and demonstrate Christ in all of life so as to make people complete in him. Good morning. It's good to be together around the word. Uh, We bless one another as we worship together our God, um, both by hearing the word, by praying, by singing both to God and to one another the gospel. This is how we are continually taught. This is so good for us and good for our souls. Um, If you don't normally join us on a Sunday morning, welcome. We're so glad you're here. Um, we're glad that you took the, took the chance to, to just step in and see how it went. Um, we, we realized there's a lot of other things that pull at your time this morning. So we're very thankful uh, to have an opportunity to worship God together with his people. Uh, I want to commend you, if you are new, we recognize that we live in a world fast-paced, full of trends and bits and bites and all different types of stuff that's coming at us. And yet we come here to worship together and sit quietly under the word because of what it is. It is God's word to us. And it's important. It's incredibly powerful. Its value, of course, is not in the fact that it's just some old book, although it's very ancient. Its its value isn't that it's got pithy, witty, clever statements in the way that it weaves all these different types of genres together. Its value isn't even in the fact that it gives you the right philosophy of life. The value in the Word of God and biblical preaching is its source. It's God Himself speaking. It is His Word to us. And so we come to hear the Word preached because it's from Him. He has spoken, and we are accountable to listen to Him. He is our Creator, our Maker, and cares deeply for us. And we desire to know and love and worship this God. And the truth is left to our own devices, we will know and love and worship ourselves what we want. Because we all know how easy it is for it to just come naturally to us. All of our own desires are real easy to pick up on. But rather, we come again to reorient ourselves under the Word, underneath God's Word, so that we would obey and we'd find fullness of joy in Him. We know that as we come before Him, we find truth. And that truth, amazingly, is that those who have rebelled and hated God and struck out against Him can now have forgiveness can now be saved eternally from his wrath and can know fullness of joy through the person of Jesus Christ. And so this morning, it's nothing new. We preach Christ. We preach that Jesus Christ, knowing that he is our greatest treasure and our ultimate joy. So let's go ahead, turn to Matthew 26, be in verse 26 through 29. And today, we're really, it's still a topical sermon. We're really still working on the Lord's Supper And we'll be here, but we'll also be in a couple of other places throughout the scriptures. But this is where we'll start. So go ahead and look at Matthew 26. I'm going to read from 26 to 29, and then I'll pray. Verse 26. Now as as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat. This is my body. And he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, 
which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of its fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we come to you now with a hopeful expectation, not because we're worthy of your gift, but rather, Lord, because you've bestowed your love on us for your own glory. We ask that you would help us to bow our hearts to your word. We desire to find our fullest joy in knowing and loving you. And Lord, allow us to respond to your instruction with joy and humility. Bind our hearts together in the unity that comes from submitting ourselves to our head, Jesus Christ. Lord God, we we ask that you would build your church today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'll ask you a quick question. What is better, a new thing or an old thing? We often think about in terms of oh, the newer is always better. And then there's some, there's a whole other camp that says, oh no, the old tried and true ways are always better. Uh, I think the, probably the, the regular answer to this question is in general that newer things are usually better. They're usually well made or they're trying to actually pr- solve a problem that we have with the last version. Uh, and any kid can tell you a new bike is way better than an old bike. Or maybe you've had the um, opportunity to have, or maybe you just maybe have driven a rental before. You know that a new car is better than an old car. At least, like, there's a whole, like, smell named after it, new car scent. I mean, it's something special of a new car. Um, new clothes, new carpets, new appliances. I mean, it's generally true that new things are, are usually better. But it's not always true. New is not always better. Many years ago, I worked for a bank, and I worked um, on my job was to collect on credit cards that the people had at the bank. The bank credit cards, when people would go overdue, maybe just like 30 days or 60 days, my job was to call them and say, hey, you're overdue. How are you going to pay for this? When will you pay? Yeah, I know, a lovely job. But I mean, this this is what I did. It It was kind of like a call center. And like any other call center, you have a high turn, uh, turnover rate because it's just not super thrilling work to do. Um, so there had to be a constant motivation, you know, hyping people up and this is going to be better. And one of the things they did have for incentives were, were bonuses. So if you met your key performance indicators and you did everything you're supposed to, and then you collected more and were able to get more people to actually pay on their old stuff, you would get a bonus. So the better that you did at doing your job, the more your bonus was. So this was a, a good system. Uh, it, it, it helped. It worked for, for most people. At least it kept them around for a little while. As you can see, that was my old job. Um, but, you know, basically the better you performed, the better your bonus was. It's pretty simple. But I can remember that the word started coming around in all the cubicles. Oh, a new structure is coming out for a new bonuses. Oh, new bonuses. That sounds great. This is going to be so good. I mean, there's going to be extra stuff maybe. There's new money. This is going to be great. Um, but we didn't really hear much about it. We just knew that there was coming a new bonus structure was coming out, and it was going to be rolling out pretty soon. When the new came around, we actually realized that there were more stipulations than there had been last time. There were new sets of ratios about how many different people you call and how many you had to come in and, and, and actually turn over. There were different new indicators. And, and in short, this was not better for us at all. Everyone went from making so much in their bonuses, almost everyone dropped. And so it became more difficult. And the truth is we all understood and experienced that new isn't always better. The new bonus structure was no better at all. It was just kind of like a marketing way to 
tell us that they're lessening our pay. Um, again, like I said, my old job. In most cases, new is better. In most cases, that's true. Usually, it represents development in a product, or it means that uh, it will be better in additions for the end user. That's, that's pretty normal. When we think about the Lord's Supper, we ought to think in terms of the new covenant. Now, not that we're saying that something that we're doing when we partake in the Lord's Supper is new. Uh, we're doing a sign and a meal of the new covenant. And in case you're wondering, of course, no, it's not like the old job with the bonus. That This new is the good new. This new is one that is better and more fulfilled. So says the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 8.6. He says, but as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent Bill and Ted were not the first ones, as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since he has enacted it on better promises. The Lord's Supper is a wonderful jewel for the church. And what I mean by that is it's multifaceted. I think a lot of times I grew up and thought it was like, okay, this is the explanation of the Lord's Supper. This is what it was. But as I continue to read Scripture, I see all these different things connecting to it and showing it. As we begin to look at it through every lens in Scripture, we see different facets of the Lord's Supper and what it means for us. It's wonderful, and continually, both by reading the Scriptures, but also participating and enjoying communion together, we learn of this unique Christian sign. Now, for the last couple of weeks, even now it's been a couple of months, uh, we've been going through a topical series called The Gospel and its ramifications for church life. We've come to realize that believing the gospel has ramifications for the church. It makes us into something. It makes us into a people, a corporate people, who gladly live and thrive under the kingship of Jesus Christ. And because of that, both our words and our actions proclaim the gospel or at least what we, actually, what we actually believe about the gospel. And therefore, it's incredibly important that our conduct as Christians is in step with the gospel. From the beginning, we started right with the beginning with the gospel. Then we preached on baptism. We talked about church membership. We talked about the responsibilities of us as members, us together, not the pastors alone, but the members being the ones that do the ministry of the gospel. We saw that Christ gave the church authority and bind and loose when we talked about church discipline. We talked about Christian community. And up until last week, we spent some extra time actually talking about the keys of the kingdom, the stewardship or the authority that is given to the church in the gospel, the responsibility of every member to understand and realize that they are stewarding the gospel message of Jesus Christ. And it is the church's responsibility and it's privilege to be a steward of the gospel. The good news that Jesus himself, the Jesus of Nazareth, is the Messiah. The stewardship is expressed clearly in our evangelism and, of course, also by living according to the gospel. That means that we must have the truth drive mission. We must actually speak the truth. If we have the gospel, understand it properly, we must give it out. But we also understand, as harsh as it may sound, that we have been given the responsibility within the community of saints, the local church body, to confront lifestyles that do not proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. In other words, the gospel is to be one of integrity, that those who believe it actually do it. It's not just a lofty thing that you assent to in your mind. You must believe it and it must change you. 
And so your actions will match up with what your hearts or your, what your words say. Again, we focused this on the last couple of weeks, and it helped us to understand how we ought to respond when things happen to us. In a sense, it's, it taught us how we properly we should to react to things that happen. In that sense, it's reactionary. But when we see this, an unrepentant sin happens, and God's people do not live according to the gospel, we see that he calls us to lovingly confront brothers and sisters for the sake of restoration. Not for the sake of kicking more and more people out and being more and more insular, but rather for restoration and continual building up of the body. Um, but we know, we, we know this, right? We know that our job really isn't just to look around at everyone's life and see, did you sin? No, no. Oh, you sinned, you sinned. Oh, and, and, and constantly point that out. That is more reactionary when we see continued unrepentant sin in the body. And we talked about how important it was to privately go and love a brother or sister and come along and say this. So we understand that's more pro, uh, like the, the reactive, but what about the proactive side? In actuality, this is where the majority of our Christian lives are lived. We've talked about this before. In fact, in this series, we talked a lot about, we talked a little about evangelism and mission, but more specifically, we talked about what we are as a biblical community supposed to look like. What does Christian community look like? It looks like love for one another, like Jesus Christ loved his disciples. Only the church really can understand this kind of love, not to say that we always do it perfectly, but the world will never understand the kind of love that finds its most powerful expression in giving Christ to one another. That is unique to the church, that we understand the most loving thing that we could do for each other and the world is actually to give Christ to one another. Our bond is in Christ to each other. Our love must look like Christ's love that he had for the disciples. We are called to live in accordance with his message, with Christ. And therefore, our actions ought to proclaim the gospel is true and that we believe it wholeheartedly. This is then the stuff of Christian life, uh, both the reactive and the proactive of how we go about this. But we know that there's more. I mean, obviously, we're meeting together here this morning, but there's more than that even. You and I may not uh, understand or care too much about ceremony or about, um, you know, uh, formal procedures or ritual observances, but they are very, very important. Uh, they are not just a made-up thing that some people we have to do as a formality. They always point to something very important. They tell a story, and they ground us in our identity. Christ gave the church two of these things, two signs, two ceremonies, if you will. They are specific and distinct. We call them ordinances or sacraments. They are very important signs that show us who we are, or maybe better, whose we are. They are very important signs, and they're memorable, they're deliberate, and they're specific. And they're, they're more so than just, um, say, loving one another. Now, we ought to love one another. We, we just learned that weeks ago. We ought to do that. And that's not saying that loving one another is less important. But it is to say that in these two ordinances, the gospel and its message are extremely clear and meant to be so, both to the world and to the church. And it is to say that in these signs, the church marks off their members from the rest of the world. And it does so in a way that is an enormous blessing to the church body. I recognize that this is not a popular idea in the broader American church. 
We don't want to be exclusive. No, Jesus was exclusive. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. I am the resurrection. I am the truth. You only come through me. And so this isn't my truth. This isn't the elder's truth. This isn't even Cornerstone's truth. This is what he proclaimed to be his people. There must be a distinction or else we will blur the lines and it will be no good. That does not mean that we don't involve and invite so many of unbelieving friends and family members into this to see and to understand, though, that there truly is a difference between those who call themselves members and those who don't. There's a vast difference of those who have said, we will commit and understand that we really are believers in Jesus Christ and those who are not willing to say so or to say, we're unbelievers. There is a distinct line, and although the world doesn't like it, it's the one that Jesus draws for us here. That's far more important than we listen. Way back in November, we talked about the initiating sign, the initiating sign of the new covenant, baptism. Uh, But today, we're going to talk about the ongoing sign of the new covenant. So those were helpful distinctions for me, the initial and the ongoing. In the initial and baptism, it only happens once to a believer. We don't keep on baptizing a person over and over again. That's an initial sign of the new covenant, an entrance into it. Whereas the Lord's Supper is this ongoing sign. We continue to do it together. We continue to participate. It's the ongoing sign of the new covenant, the Lord's Supper. Now, several of us have probably grown up um, in or around church, and we obviously are not against the Lord's Supper or baptism. We're we're pro-baptism, pro-Lord's Supper. That's a good thing. We're not against that. We know Jesus commanded it, so we want to make sure that we do it as well. And we're willing. We're glad and willing to obey in doing these things. But we're not too sure how much significance should be there. We're not too sure about the meaning side of it. We want to be very careful that we don't go too crazy on the meaning side, that we don't weight it too heavily. We don't want to like slip into a totally different denomination because we're thinking something else is happening over here. We don't want to abuse the way that we would communicate these things, that they would somehow have some sort of magical saving power in and of themselves. We want to be very clear that these physical acts of baptism and communion are not some mystical grace that gets given to you through the air just by simply getting, being part of it as if genuine faith in Christ didn't matter. We rightly want to make sure that we do not confuse the source of grace with the means of grace. We never want to look to the water in the baptismal pool or the act of dunking someone under the water as our saving mechanism. It can't be. And we never want to look to the bread and the wine as that which would make us simply just holier because we had those things and we ate or drank them. But that doesn't mean that these ceremonies are simply good acts of obedience that just kind of remember, help us remember where we came from. It's right for us then to examine these things to make sure we understand what we are doing in the Lord's Supper. They're an important subject, especially since it's not just theory. We practice this regularly as a body. So it's important that we would understand what we're talking about when we come here. And we're commanded to do it. So both of these practices are a means of strengthening our faith in Christ. They are full of meaning and significance for the church. And as such, they should hold a prominent place in our life together as a church. Over the next two weeks, this week and next week, we will look at the significance and the usefulness. That's important. The significance and the usefulness of the Lord's Supper. We'll do that by answering four questions. The first one, what is the Lord's Supper? Second, what does the Supper do or what does it accomplish? Number three, who is the supper for? 
And then in light of these truths, how should we then approach the Lord's Supper? What's our approach to be like? So this week, we'll simply try to get through the first question. It's just, it's that important, it's that big that we need to understand what the Lord's Supper is. It's important so that we can actually go into the next questions and answer them properly. Because if we don't understand this first part, we're going to be confused when we get to the other questions. Because it's not up to us to, to, to answer those other questions. The scriptures actually answer it in the fact of what it is. It will help us and guide us in this way. So next Sunday, we'll come back, we'll do the three other questions in the morning. Then we'll do Sunday evening, our core seminar. We will come back and work through all the questions and the details that might be helpful to work through in this in regards to the communion, communion ceremony. So let's begin. First question. What is the Lord's Supper? The Lord's Supper is a sign and a meal of the new covenant. We've kind of talked about this already a little bit. Now to understand the sign and the meal of the new covenant, that kind of says that there's something else. Maybe there's a sign and a meal of the old covenant. And I think it'd be helpful for us to reference that as we begin here. The Passover. Let's take a look for a minute. See, Christ is not doing something that's brand new, that no one's ever done anything like this ever before. In fact, what Jesus Christ is doing when he is assembling his disciples and he's, he's practicing the Passover he is remaking it and showing that there's a significance that they have never been able to kind of put their finger on before. It's actually in him. But he's not doing something that's brand new. He's actually building off a common understanding of how God interacts with his covenant people. God's covenant people, Israel, were defined in one major act of salvation in the Old Testament. Now, there's lots of times where he saved them, but there's one major one that they continue to go back to over and over again. And many of you know what I'm talking about. We find this act in the book of Exodus. Abraham had, given, had been given many promises of land, of seed, of offspring, of, of blessing. But the children of Israel eventually find themselves enslaved in Egypt under the heavy hand of Pharaoh. And things are not looking very good, not going too well. It doesn't look like Abraham's promises are working out. But in Genesis 15... If you remember, 12 through 17, the Lord told Abraham that this would happen, that they would go into a land of sojourning. And he told them that he would release them from this sojourning. In the book of Exodus, we watch as Moses is used by God to deliver the people from the hands of Pharaoh. Now, through severe plagues, and we know all the 10 plagues, but then specifically, especially that last 10th plague, where we understand the killing of the firstborn is very personal and very abrupt one that actually centered in on the firstborn in each household. In the midst of this judgment across all of Egypt, God is working something amazing to save his people. It is not separate. It's actually in the midst of all this judgment, you see God working salvation and deliverance. God will make a way for the firstborns of Israel to be saved from the destroyer from the angel of death. All Israel is to join together in slaughtering perfect lambs. And they are to mark their doors, spreading the blood on the doorposts. They know they're to do this and also eat the Passover meal together, together in haste. It is to be done as a whole assembly. If you're to go back to Exodus 12, you'll read this account. And you really should. It's fascinating how much you're gonna see here. All of a sudden you're like, oh man, this is really significant. All these different things that he had them do make sense for their whole history going forward. And now as we look at it, huh, it kind of even looks somewhat like 
communion or like the Lord's Supper. Something is close here. In Exodus 12, you're going to get the institution of the, Lord, of the Passover. Again, you should go read it, but I'm going to give you a little shot, a little idea here. I'm going to tell you a few things. In verse 12, what's going to happen is he's going to show that he's going to judge all the firstborn by killing them. But when we get to verse 13, we realize that we will see that blood represents Israel's salvation. Let me read verse 13 and 14. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be from you, for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord. Throughout your generations, as a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. So it's also going to be important for us to see along the way here this is to be done by the gathered assembly of all Israel. Verse 47 reminds us, all of congregation of Israel will keep it. And what about like their neighbors that weren't Israelites? They weren't Hebrews. Uh, maybe some Egyptians that kind of came on their side and they were, we want to join with you into this meal. 48 tells us this. Listen to this. If a stranger shall sojourn with you and you would keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised. Then he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land, but no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. In other words, the non-Israelite must receive circumcision and submit to Yahweh as God. It's not just simply a removal of the flesh and circumcision. In this act, it is submitting oneself to God and to his law. And the Passover meal marked off who God's people were. The only ones that were bona fide Israelites were rightly to partake of the Passover meal together. Uh, this becomes more than just one time, though, for Israel. It's not just the one time that they always remember. In fact, it becomes a memorial or a rite, R-I-T-E, a ceremony. In verse 24, he says, You shall observe this rite as a statute for you and your sons forever. This was to become an annual feast, um, a meal of the Old Covenant here, understanding this and understanding their salvation or their rescue from the hand of Egypt by God's judgment and of specifically through blood. The Passover is a sign and a meal of the Old Covenant. It showed us the salvation through the blood at Passover. It points to the act of salvation that God is enacting deliverance for his people and it's only found in submitting oneself to God and God alone. Loving him, serving him, following him as his people. It is only for his people. All others, it, that the ceremony is useless or it's meaningless to them. It's untrue. So now after we take a look at this, this is what the old covenant sign and meal is, the Passover. It's helpful for us now to say, okay, how does that affect our understanding of the sign and the meal of the new covenant? The Lord's Supper. Is, it, do those things connect? What, what does it look like? To, well, we connect those two things. Now we can look at Matthew 26 with all that in the background because when the disciples in verse 17 through 19, they get sent. This is Matthew 26, sorry. In Matthew 26, verse 17 through 19, Jesus sends his disciples to go get ready for the Passover. I want you to get ready for it. Get this room set up so we can celebrate the Passover together. It's that context that now we're coming into. They know how to celebrate the Passover. They've done this for their whole lives. This is what all Israel has done all the way since the Exodus. But after all that's happened, this is what Jesus says in 26. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, 
take, eat. Here's the kicker. This is my body. Whoa. Then he says, and he took the cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. He has just taken this thing, this thing that they know well, this Passover celebration, and all of a sudden he points to himself and says, this is my body, this is my blood of the new covenant that's poured out for you, for many, for the forgiveness of sins. Incredible layering here of so many things he's trying to communicate to them. In the Passover celebration, Jesus is doing something new in this one right here. The covenant is here. He's about to actually purchase salvation for his people. You know where he's at. He's on the road to the cross. He's about to be sacrificed on the cross and pay for all of the sins, all the judgment that you and I deserve. He will take it at the cross. The forgiveness of their sins through the atoning death of Jesus Christ on the cross. He is going to rescue or deliver, that kind of sounds familiar, his people through the perfect blood of the lamb. And not just any lamb. Of course, it is the perfect lamb. Now, Egypt, of course, was pretty terrible. It was bad for the people. It wasn't a great place to be. They're very strong. Uh, But this enemy that we talk about was nothing compared to sin and death. Now, that's a real enemy you need to be concerned about. Only God has the power to release his people from bondage and slavery to sin. And it can only be done through a perfect lamb. And I don't mean an animal. Jordan even prayed thousands and millions of different animals year after year after year after year could not atone for our sin. It had to be a perfect lamb, but it had to be a man. It had to be a perfect man, a perfect substitution. It had to be a perfect sacrifice. And God's people didn't need physical salvation only. Sure, they did. I mean, we certainly want to pray for being saved from this bad thing or that bad thing. But that's not the most important thing. They needed to be rescued from the eternal wrath of God poured out on them in judgment. And when I say them, I mean us. That's what we're talking about here. The eternal wrath of God poured out against our sin, poured out on us. We needed someone to step in and be our substitute. They needed to be forgiven of their sins. And in giving his disciples the bread and calling it his body, and in giving his disciples the wine and calling it his blood, Jesus is helping them understand what he is about to do in his death. It's not a mistake. He's not going to be like, oh man, these guys are coming to get me. I'm probably going to die. You know, here's, here's the backup plan. He is saying that what's going on is on purpose. He is making sure that they understand that he is willingly giving himself up as the sacrificial lamb. He is remaking the Passover so that now the disciples understand what's happening. It's at this point that the disciples are realizing who Jesus is. Now, they're still trying to figure it out. They don't have it all clear. They're starting to realize who he is. The Passover is now seen as a sign that pointed both backward and forward. Backward, of course, to Israel's deliverance from Egypt, But now it's becoming clearer and clearer that this was a shadow of something that was to come, that now they're sitting around, they're like, oh my goodness, this is happening. You mean that it's you are the bread? I mean, you are the blood? and What do you mean? And they're still trying to figure this whole thing out. They look back to this thing and now it's becoming clear that there's a new and better and more ultimate way that God is going to deliver his people. 
When Jesus says, this is my body and this is my blood, he is saying that the bread and the wine are a sign of the new covenant. He's holding them and showing them these things. He is naming the sign by what it points to, showing them that this is representative of him. And since this is the sign of the new covenant, he commands that this is what his disciples are to be doing going forward regularly. Now, we know that this is the sign of the new covenant. In Luke twenty-two nineteen, 19, this is a parallel passage to kind of explain this as well. He says something a little bit more in that passage. He says, this is my body, which is given to you. Do this in remembrance of me. And by that, he's saying, as you do this, and as you do this again, he's trying to help them understand, you need to continue to do this in remembrance of me. Later on through Acts, we see them practice the Lord's Supper. In the epistles, all over the place, they're practicing the Lord's Supper. It becomes the norm for the Christian church to partake in the Lord's Supper as a sign and meal of the new covenant. It points to Jesus as the fulfillment of all the promises that were made to Abraham, to David, to all the way through the prophets now are come true in Jesus. This sign and meal no longer points simply to sacrificial lambs and unliving bread back in Egypt, but to the work of Jesus on the cross in the new covenant promises that he, by his death, has secured for his people. This was a new covenant that would provide forgiveness from sin. Different, completely the old one. This would seal it up. There would be forgiveness of sin that would make the old covenant obsolete. And one more thing, it would bring the Holy Spirit to dwell with his people. We should ask this question. I think this is helpful. Uh, as we're thinking about these things, okay, what's different from the old covenant and the new covenant? Like, I've, got, I've got three things that will help us think this through. Number one, what's different between the old covenant and the new covenant? Since Jesus has come and proved himself to be the Messiah, he then is the mediator of the new covenant. Which means if you and I want to be part of his covenant-keeping people, if you and I want salvation, if you and I want to be on God's side, it is only ever through Jesus Christ. He is the mediator of this new covenant. Salvation can only be through him and him alone. To be his people, covenant-keeping people, it's no longer through circumcision, but in faith in Christ alone. That's the first thing. That's different. The second thing, Hebrews 8.13 says this, In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. So he's not saying you could could do it this way by Christ or you can still do it by the old way. No, 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 no. You you must go through Christ. Now he's been revealed, the word of God in flesh, incarnate. Here he is. This is the one you must have your faith in. Since Christ has come, there can only be one place for your trust, for your love, for your affections. And that's Christ and Christ alone. The third thing, and we've kind of hit on this a little bit already, the new covenant brings us, as Ezekiel 36 says, a new heart. But more than that, the Holy Spirit's presence in his church. Now, you probably know this text already, but Jeremiah told us that this was going to happen. He knew that it was impossible for the old covenant to finally deliver God's people from their greatest need. There had to be something or better there had to be someone who could pay the ultimate price and pay for the sin of God's people. Let me read Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. 
not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor, and each his brother say, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the, la- from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. How can he forgive their iniquity or remember their sin no more when Exodus has taught us that he cannot clear the guilty? In other words, in the new covenant, someone must have taken the hit. Someone must have done it. Someone must have actually taken the judgment that we so rightly deserved so that we could have the law written on our hearts so that we could say we know the Lord, so that we could have the Holy Spirit dwell inside of us. Guys, it's Jesus. It is him. He is the fulfillment of Jeremiah 31. And the Lord's Supper is a ceremony, a sign that stands to remind us of the wonder and work of the new covenant through the blood or death of Jesus Christ. And so the Lord's Supper is a sign that reminds us of the benefits that we have received in the new covenant. But why did he make it a meal? That we would eat these things. What was that for? I mean, it, it, what, does he have a purpose there? Or is that just a clever way to do it? I'll just get cut right to the chase. It doesn't act only as a reminder to us. We're to catch this. It is also a way that God feeds his saints. Now, I know that sounds a little dramatic. I know you're like, what exactly do you mean by that? But I think you can understand that these are words that are not mine, but rather are Jesus's. In John 6, if you remember clearly, he's the one that says to his disciples, eat my flesh, drink my blood. Is he meaning that those around him should come up and take a bite out of his ankle or out of his arm? Of course not. So what is he saying then? We all understand the silliness of such a thing, but what is Jesus saying then if he's saying that? It's a hard saying, but we understand he is saying that to fully trust and fully rely on him would bring a disciple true life and true nourishment, all that they need. He was saying that true ultimate life could only be found in the true bread, Jesus Christ himself. And that his disciples must take in, must receive, must rely on, must eat of this one true bread. A a wholehearted saying, yes, I take this in. This is the type of reliance or faith or trust that we're talking about in the Lord's Supper. It's the same type of faith we're talking about in salvation as we trust him and him alone. We don't get a new faith after we get past conversion. And now it's a different type of faith. And we just kind of do the things that we know we're supposed to do. No, we walk through life trusting. You've heard it said, preach the gospel and trust him day after day after day to yourself. That's because we continually trust and we need the faith that he awakens in us. Only he can do. But that's the faith that we pray for. When I pray for our own people, I pray for faith and repentant hearts. I pray that we would be, have broken and contrite spirits before him and that he would supply repentance and true faith. That he would cause us to trust him and him alone. This is the type of faith that we're talking about in the Lord's Supper. When we talk about nourishment, or feeding, or grace that we would receive in the Lord's Supper, what do we mean? So we want to be careful, right? 
We are given grace as we listen to the word preached in faith. We are given grace as we read our Bibles in our own homes in faith. We are given grace as we commune with God in prayer, as we trust him and walk with him in faith. We are given grace as then we receive Christ and his benefits in the Lord's Supper in faith. We're not getting saved again. No one's saying that. This is not salvation over again. But in the Lord's Supper, we enjoy a special fellowship as we purposely receive these gifts by faith. He tells them you need to receive this. He tells the same thing to us. We must receive this by faith with our hands, with our our, our mouths, alongside the rest of the body. We receive this gift, body and bread and and, and wine. This meal is a faith-bolstering Get that, a faith-bolstering encouragement. To who? I'll give you three examples. It encouraged the saint who is struggling to mortify sin. They know that they ought to. You and I know. I can, I, this week, I'm, I'm praying that God would mortify sin in my life. Certain things, pride, uh, uh, anger, control, uh, lust, whatever the sin is that we struggle with, we want to mortify that thing. In the supper, when we sit down, we realize that the old man has been mortified at the cross. Romans 6 tells us that our old man is dead, that he was crucified at the cross. And he's put to dead with his deeds of the old man. And our confidence is no, no longer in ourselves really making sure we whip this thing, but our confidence lies in Jesus Christ. It's also an encouragement, secondly, to the one who is struggling with doubt, who's not sure what's going on. By faith, we receive these gifts with our hands into our body, being reminded that as real as these elements are, the bread and the wine, as real as they are, Christ's work in you and me and all of his benefits are that real. Look to Christ, therefore, and believe. It bolsters our faith. Thirdly, it's an encouragement to the one who suffers. The one who suffers maybe physical pain, maybe it's social pain, Maybe it's just the stuff of life that's going on. It's an encouragement for the one who suffers when we come to the table. He does not suffer alone or in vain. Jesus has gone before and suffered so that we might know the glory of his resurrection and our resurrection in him. We said this before, but the bread and the juice are not magical. Nothing's happening in the bread and the juice specific that we would say, we got this delivery from heaven and this is the stuff. Everyone get this stuff right here. It doesn't have any physical grace-giving powers by itself. The Lord's Supper, as we partake of it in faith, is a meal that nourishes the body of Christ. In the Lord's Supper, we partake of the bread and wine. We receive Christ's benefits by faith. We commune or share or participate in the body and blood of Christ. And we'll get a little more into that next week. We remember his death, commemoration. You know this one, we proclaim his death until he comes. There's much more to say, and again, we'll work on this a little bit more next week. Next week, But consider now that the Lord's Supper proclaims the gospel and its benefits to us. Every time we consider, every time that we partake, we realize that in a tangible way, it proclaims the gospel and its benefits to his body. In the Lord's Supper, we have a sign and a meal. We hear, we see, we touch, and we even taste the goodness of our Lord in his death. We commune with Christ and his people. 
And together, when we eat and drink, we affirm our trust in Christ and our commitment to the gospel of Jesus Christ. But in the end, this sermon, uh, it really isn't to get us excited about a ceremony. That, that's not the purpose. I mean, hopefully we'll be a little more excited and understand the commitment to why this is such a good thing for us to continue to do. But this time really ought to help us remember to look back and to look forward. It ought to help us get to the essence of what we're talking about. Not that we're so excited about the meal. It should open our eyes afresh to what we're part of. It should open our eyes afresh to the new covenant that we now are secured in Jesus Christ, that we can be part of his people because of what Christ has done. To the fact that Christ has come and that he will come again. To the fact that he can, we can know eternal salvation and we can be part of his covenant-keeping people through faith in Jesus Christ alone. That is amazing. We can know true salvation. How about this fact? That God has sent his Holy Spirit to reside in his church. Wow. I mean, some of the saints of old would, 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 I don't know, give their left arm to have that and understand what it would be like to actually have the Holy Spirit living inside them and being part of the church. And we have that. And it brings us really right back to the important piece. It's not just to be like, man, I'm so glad we live in this time period. It brings us back to the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ and all that we've received in the past in knowing him all now that he is doing for us in the present and all that he will do all the way to our completion. We can be sure because of his work on the cross that by faith we partake in Christ and we will have ultimate joy in him forever. Church, let us look to Christ as our only hope and rejoice. Also, let us look to Christ as the only hope for the world. And therefore, let us be salt and light and stop just being worried about ourselves. We ought to give this gospel message to the world. It ought to be part of us and strategize about how we can tell people about Jesus Christ, that they would know and love him. In the end, let us ever proclaim Jesus Christ is king. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you so much for your grace, opening our eyes, making dead people alive, people who could not see, who were spiritually blind, you made them to be able to see. Lord, we thank you for the blood of Jesus Christ. We thank you for giving us faith. We thank you that you have made a way for us to know salvation and joy in you. We recognize, Lord, that we've done nothing and you have done everything. And we submit to you gladly, joyfully, knowing that you, Christ, our captain, has won our salvation. We ask that you would teach us to live in light of this, to love you, to understand what it means to be part of the new covenant, and to rejoice to proclaim Jesus Christ as king. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. For further sermons and more information on Cornerstone Bible Church, please visit cbcvirginia.com.